our study on Bible lists. I said we're going to see how long we'll do this. There's lots of different lists of verses that are compiled. I mentioned last week that's out of Harold Wilmington's uh, book of Bible lists, and it's a great big thing. I think you have the print copy version right there. Look at that. And so she's, she knows how long the sermon's going to be. Or at least where it's supposed to end, you know, because we're going down. But actually, I've added some more verses in there, too, not to take away from Harold Wilmington, but just to uh, branch out on our study tonight. But we were looking at, last week, uh, 53 facts about heaven. And uh, I think I should change the title because i got more facts about heaven than that. But anyways, uh, this is sort of uh, the part two segment of it because we ended halfway through that. But... We were looking at, last week, primarily the descriptions of heaven, um, the descriptions of the New Jerusalem, and we were looking at everything the scripture lays out from its dimensions, its size, its colors, its shapes, its sounds, its uh, occupants, you know, all kinds of different things, and we just sort of touched on that. Now, tonight we'll go into a little bit of... uh, uh, more or less what heaven is like itself and then talk some more about um, uh, sort of overlap of what we covered last week as well so that's where we're that's the plan that's where we're headed tonight and uh, we will move on after heaven and look for another list of bible uh, topics that all or a topic that strings together in the scriptures but last week we ended looking at the city that will be Uh, shining and enlightened by God's glory and then that was like point number 29 and point number 30 I have here on this list is is a place of holiness and we've touched on that a little bit but heaven is a place by where there will be no sin and the issues that we deal with down here of our own flesh and our own sin uh, will not be part of heaven at all Uh, it is a holy place because God is holy And if you think about heaven, see, sin ruins everything, doesn't it? I mean, every time sin touches, touch the human race, right, through Adam and Eve. You have sin coming in through Adam, and it ruined uh, ruined creation. It ruined man. Now, we still have um, a lot of good things, and there's amazing things that even sinful man can do and accomplish in and of himself or whatever, but really we are in many ways ruined by sin and we are not what we are and should be now if god allowed sin into heaven in other words it wasn't a holy place heaven would be ruined in no time wouldn't it and so that's why only holy people saved holy people can be in the very presence of god in heaven and so that's part of that whole idea of what's the big deal with holiness and righteousness and all of that that's the big deal Um, eternal life is not had without it at least eternal life in heaven is not had anyways revelation 21 27 it describes heaven this way but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life and let's pray before we go further lord we are so grateful for the word of god And Lord, although we can sit now in in this place and this time and and wonder a lot because we have not ventured to that distant land that seems so distant, yet probably not far at all. And yet, Lord, you have. You are the anchor of the soul. You're the forerunner. 
the one who has gone before us, and you're the one who's preparing a place for us. And so we thank you for that. And as we learn more tonight, help us to appreciate this topic and this doctrine of heaven. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Heaven is a place of holiness, and a lot more could be said about that, but we better move on. Second, or another number 31 on the list, it's a place of beauty. And interesting, like in Psalm 50, verse 2, it says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Now that's a reference not to the earthly Zion of Jerusalem, which is sometimes referred to as that, but from the abode of God. And when you think about the perfection of beauty, I, there, there are some amazing, beautiful sights in the world we live today. Um, I've got friends on Facebook, you know, that are always posting beautiful pictures of scenery and things like that. Chris Michaud's good at that, isn't he? Uh, just about the time you think there's no more sunsets you can see, he has another one, and, or a sunrise or something like that. And I'm always marveling at the, the beauty and, and the creativity that goes with that sometimes. Uh, but, but think of the most beautiful sights you've ever seen. And then think, you know, if you can even in your mind's eye go there, to realize the beauty that remains ahead of things, the, the beauty that will be in heaven in a perfect world. Today we look at you know sunsets and sometimes they're pretty because there's smoky skies or something like that that's creating you know some, some doom on the horizon or whatever. And uh, I think out of Ontario we've been smelling smoke all summer or at least seeing it. And now my friends back here, uh, John Greenway and uh, Virginia and, and their children here are with us. Uh, John and I went to Bible school together, by the way, and, um, uh, and have stayed, well, stayed friends, although we haven't seen each other for 30 years. So that's, uh, that's what happens. But uh, it's been good to reconnect with them. But I was thinking about um, my friends in Ontario that when these uh, forest fires were going and in Quebec also and others and all that smoke that was blowing into the northeast here this spring. We live in a world that can be beautiful at times, but sometimes it's, it's beauty that is seen through the lens of, of tragedies and other areas, you know, things that scar it for sure. And uh, uh, in that, anyways, I don't want to deviate too far off course here, um, but that is something. Now, I had a couple quotes, and one of those quotes was from C.S. Lewis. He talks about the idea of, uh, of beauty and uh, I was able, well, first of all, uh, on holiness, sorry, his quote was on holiness, but he, he said this, he says, how little people know who think that holiness is dull, when one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. And coupled with that holiness and beauty, because heaven is a perfect place, I think of that, that we, just even in our own minds, cannot imagine what awaits us. Uh, the eye has not seen, nor the ear heard what the Lord has prepared for us in that. And that's something that, um, something again that God will reveal to us when we get there for sure. All right, moving on. Go back to my notes here. Uh, it's a place of unity. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now, what Paul writes here, he's talking about the really the final state of eternity. 
when he will gather all the redeemed and those uh, things that are not under redemption, like, like angels that were, haven't fallen, they will be present in heaven and maybe other creatures and all that. But to say, we will be gathered together in one, all things. And then that idea of unity. Here on earth, at best, we, we see little glimpses of unity, right? Sometimes people are unified in a bad way. Sometimes they're unified in a good way. There is certainly that aspect of unity within a church and within a Christian you know, community of a church that um, hopefully that's the aspect well, of fellowship, right? That's our Acts 2.42, continuing steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, right? Fellowship is part of that foundational part of that. And to be in fellowship, you have to be unified or in unity, uh, yet we will never be perfectly unified even now in this state that we're in but only in heaven and i think of that even when you are uh, like for instance uh missionaries i you know we served in missions and i can think of the amount of times that we served with uh missionaries that had all signed the same doctrinal statement we had all signed the same practice, you know, of what we prob- promised we would practice and do and things like that. And then when you get together, you realize the one thing we didn't sort out at Mission Candidate School is that we all have different personalities. And sometimes that rubs on you, you know, coworker, and maybe nothing inherently bad, just that you, you can't stand that person doing that and you're not like that. And, and, and we're not totally unified. Uh, one of the I think the things that God does for us and commands us, and if we're obedient to him in right now, in the going forth and making disciples and being active about that, you have a whole lot less time to look sideways and criticize and divide. And I think uh, unity or the lack of unity is really a sign that disciples aren't doing, they aren't on mission. They aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. So anyways, that's a, a thought on that. Uh, it's heaven, back to heaven here, 1 Corinthians 13.10. Now this verse, it's hard to definitively say this is a reference to heaven. It, it could be a reference to the completion of the word of God. It could be a reference uh, to other things as well. But in, in essence, I think it's the final thing. It says, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. And it's in the context of... Um, uh, like for instance tongues and and revelation as it's being given in that first century in first you know in first corinthians paul writes dealing with a church that um, well they were not mature and they were practicing things they shouldn't and they were attempting to do things so he writes in that but i think what sort of this overarching sort of theme that comes out of that is ultimately in the end these things will be completed, all right? Everything, not just those controversial things, but that will be completed. I do believe that some of that has been completed already. But uh, the reference here being the perfect state, the completed state, and these other things will be done away. Um, it's a place of joy. Sandy was talking about joy tonight, you know, just the joy that the Lord gives you. And we see glimpses of that here. And I think we find our deepest joy only in the Lord. Psalm 1611 says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. 
and ultimately, I mean, now I can be in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. This morning, you were talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and joy is one of those really characters or fruits that is available, and that's now. But ultimately, our joy will be fulfilled in the presence of the Lord in heaven. Think of the, the most joyous times you've ever had on this earth. And there's hopefully everybody has some joyous times. Um, and just multiply that to infinity and say, wow, what's it going to be like in heaven? And it isn't going to be just like something we do down here. See, down here, people try to find you know, happiness and joy in something that will take away pain, mostly. <laughs> like they numb it either through... Uh, you know, drinking, drugs, whatever pleasures that we try to seek out that aren't, uh, you know, under the confines of what God's will allows and all of those things. And, and we really do that mostly to escape life, not to really find joy. And in heaven, it won't be like that at all. We'll have the sense of joy in a very perfect place, in a perfect body, with a perfect mind, all of that, with a perfect God. And Heaven's a great place, isn't it? It's a place for all eternity. It doesn't end. There are things that, as a kid, I remember thinking, I look forward to this event or that or going here or doing this for the first time, that kind of stuff. And um, now looking back after over half a century, I I realized that some of those were very short-lived, you know, uh, you know, you graduated from grammar school. Okay, wow, I was looking forward to that. That was a joyful experience because I didn't have to be in eighth grade with my mother as a teacher, all right? Not because she was a bad teacher. It's just I couldn't get away with anything. And she was the substitute teacher for that year in my eighth grade class. And, and I remember getting out of that. But then I'm thinking, wow, you know, that was short-lived. And all of a sudden, got another challenge, another challenge, another challenge. And life is like that, isn't it? In heaven, it never ends. Not the challenges, but the joy and the eternal state. That's what it means, eternal. No end. You will be as complete and happy and joyful and all the other characteristics of what will go on there as much on day one as in day trillion, whatever. It never ends. And down here, everything good seems to come to an end eventually, doesn't it? But in heaven, it isn't like that. Because God is, doesn't end, does he? Uh, we were talking about John chapter 3. Let me back up to that verse, actually, in the context earlier. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? That was right after Jesus said, You have to be born again. And he explains about the new birth. And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And do not know these things. Sometimes those that are the smartest, supposedly, or the, have the most qualifications or the most training, sometimes don't have the, the big picture. And I don't care. They, we, none of us have all the picture, for sure. Here's Nicodemus. He's a master of the law, uh, the Jewish you know, scriptures, and a teacher in Israel, and, and he doesn't know the basics of, of salvation. Jesus was not making you know light of him in that way but he's bringing him up short 
you know, all your degrees and all your time of study and everything else don't amount to a hill of beans if you don't understand who Jesus is and what awaits us. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Here's Jesus comparing things. And this is the the whole idea of here. I've I've had people say this to me. Um, I've asked the question, like, if you were to die right now, do you know if you're going to heaven? And I've had people reply, I don't believe in heaven. And I say, why don't you believe in heaven? Well, I've never seen heaven. And I mean, that's an answer. It's a I don't know, it's a, not a right answer, but it's an answer. And there are people that won't believe in something because they haven't seen it. Well, here's Nicodemus. He's obviously someone who has come to Jesus. Um, he's, whether he wanted it or not, been asked these questions, and Jesus is probing his heart. But he goes a little deeper, and he says, how will you believe heavenly things? Heavenly things are not so visible, so seen, because they, they are yet to have to be experienced from our perspective. And by faith, we believe. That's the answer. If he laid everything out for us in a beautiful picture and showed us exactly what every detail was, I, I, I don't know how we would handle that. Ultimately, God wants us to trust him for the eternal things as well. He goes on to say, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven... Do you want the best expert on heaven is Jesus himself? Because he came from heaven to earth. That is the son of man who is in heaven. Here he is telling Nicodemus, who, I came from heaven, but I'm also in heaven. You say, well, how in the world can that happen? Because he's God. And literally Jesus, although he, as the son, uh, unique in the Godhead as God the Son put on flesh and dwelt among us, yet completely in unity with the Holy Spirit and the Father who were in heaven and also. So anyways, there's big theological discussion on that, what Jesus meant by that. But I think that's this very simple answer of it. Then he goes on to say, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then there's the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about heaven. He's talking about eternal life, which you know is beyond this world. And uh, you get that if when, you, when you think of the context of that, what Jesus is talking about, that's where he's going with it. It's a place for all eternity. There's a lot of scriptures that deal with this same theme um, i was thinking about that this morning and uh well, this afternoon excuse me when i was going over this again psalm 23 and this psalm ends with the eternal state but it really if you think about this in the context of heaven as you read it and you find out that much of what the psalmist writes here uh, metaphoric as a shepherd or a sheep really it's from the perspective of a sheep uh, he's writing it also with the idea that only in heaven is this truly fulfilled. Although this is a psalm that we often think of associated with here, because it is, it's for us now. But it's also, really, the completion of it is in the future. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There are times I still want today, even though the Lord is my shepherd. But in heaven, I'll come to a place where I don't want anymore. Think of that. You get up in the morning, and already in your head, you've got things you want. You know? I want to be able to make it to the bathroom, right? I want to be able to eat breakfast. I want to be able to get dressed. I want to be able to get out. I want to be able to do something today. I want to be comfortable. I want to be warm. I want to be whatever. We always have these wants. But in heaven, there won't be anything like that that will cause us to have that desire that won't be met or fulfilled. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. We looked at the description of heaven last week and there's a river flowing from the throne of God that is crystal clear it is still still waters ultimately in heaven is the only time you will be truly at stillness here at best we have moments of stillness he restores my soul now, certainly he does that now, but how much more so in heaven when this weary old soul will finally be in his presence and made alive more than ever before. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. That's starting now. You can follow the righteous path. Where does that path lead? To the very abode of God. For his namesake, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Someday in heaven there will be no evil. There will be no fear. Down here, I don't care who you are, even Chuck Norris is probably afraid of things, you know. Listen, in heaven there's nothing that will ever make you afraid. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I I don't see that directly necessarily uh, that in heaven we have the marriage supper of the Lamb as it's described. I believe that's laid out for the church, for the bride of Christ and the celebration of the, the bride and the bridegroom in this spiritual union that will culminate there. And he lays out a feast. His judgment is poured out and has been poured out on earth. We're feasting. That too will ultimately be fulfilled in heaven. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. How long is your life if you're one of his? forever it's eternal life so every moment of eternity goodness and mercy will be following you and you'll never lose that or have it forsaken and i will dwell in the house of the lord forever and that's what it means forever We mentioned this verse last week in different contexts, but um, another further description in heaven. 
Um, there may be a tabernacle there. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And uh, again, there will be some measure of understanding of the dwelling of God and the sacrifice of God, which were both associated with the earthly temple and tabernacle. Um, there is a heavenly, apparently, ta- temple tabernacle in, uh, that is pictured here in Revelation 15. And also Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And the understanding of the very dwelling place of God is God himself. That may be indeed that way. Um, and so some of this will make sense someday when we get there. And we see it, face, we see him face to face. Later on in verse 22, says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So there's a clear statement on it. Another point, there'll be no more sea. It says, um, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Also there was no more sea. And why would John throw that in there? I, I Just because he's describing what he doesn't see in this case. Um, and there is no more ocean or sea as it's known. I mentioned last week the verse in Isaiah that says that the wicked are like the troubled sea. And in scripture often the sea is um, seen in a in a um, sort of representative of a place that is always moving, it's always dangerous. Um, the stories in the Gospels of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, for example, you know, and you have the disciples in a boat and they're getting ready to sink and they're scared out of their wits and, and Jesus appears to them and he, he, he makes a great calm out of a great storm. I think heaven's going to be like that as well. We'll go from this place full of its storms, sometimes literal storms on a sea, and going into the presence of God where it's all still. And there'll be a great calm as we've never known in our whole existence. I was thinking about that today and the sea. How, how many people have drowned in the sea? Or have had to make a living in the sea and, and a very hard living at that for those that do. But, you know, from ancient times on, there's been a lot of people lost at sea. In heaven, there'll never be someone lost at sea. You know, never again. And the Bible actually says in the resurrection that the sea gives up its dead. They'll stand before the Lord um, for those who are believers, they'll already be in his presence. No more sea. We sang this morning, It is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford, who wrote that, and um, he, of course, wrote that uh, after his wife and four daughters set sail to go to England. And they got in a collision with another ship, and their ship, the Ville du Havre, sank. And his wife was the only one that survived. The four daughters 
the youngest being just a toddler, a young toddler, like 15 months or something like that, and I think the oldest was six, all drowned. And it was after he set sail to go and get to his surviving wife. Obviously, she was in England at that time. He set sail from America to meet up with her. And as they were passing over that same area, the ship captain pointed that out and told him, this is where your family, your daughters drowned. And he shortly thereafter wrote that song, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, And in that song too, you know, uh, pictures for us in the end of that the victory in the eternal state huh? when the trump shall resound and all of those things and that's that's future uh spafford didn't end well here on earth he he actually later on they went on to have i think um uh, three more children if i remember correct as he lost a son to scarlet fever in around 1880 um, later on he went off on his ex- eschatology and believed that and he started a messianic i would just describe it more like a cult and uh, he ended up dying fairly, like not really young, but like 58 or, or 59 years old uh, of malaria and while he was in uh, Palestine. But anyways, that, I say that, but the words he wrote in a time of great grief pointed heavenward. And often that is how my, our, our hymns we sang tonight um, all point that way in every last of those verses point towards heaven. I think the reason is because there will be no more tears. That's the next verse. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You lead me beside still waters, right? You make me lie down. I I love that before that. You lead me in paths of righteousness. You make me lie down in in those green pastures and beside the still waters and and I'm thinking, God, you're so good. Ultimately, I'll be in that place in heaven. No more tears. How many tears do you suppose have ever been shed in the human existence from Adam on? A lot of tears. And God notes them, all of them. How many times have you cried? I mean, really cried, not just because you were, you know your favorite ball team or something lost or something like but you know like some real tragedy this is all of us have experienced tragic times or times our hearts are just broken before the lord psalm 58 56 8 says you number my wanderings put my tears into your bottle are they not in your book god knows exactly how many tears you've shed wow and every tear from those that are his he knows that. And he's no stranger to tears. When Jesus was in this place, he wept, right? Think of it, he wept over Jerusalem when he came into Jerusalem and he looked at Jerusalem and he just wept. This city of God that doesn't represent near what the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem would be like. And he wept. He wept because they had rejected him. Not everybody, but most. He wept because they didn't understand the day of their visitation that who was in their presence. And then, of course, the shortest verse of the Bible, it's tied with uh, 
pray always and give thanks, but, but Jesus wept. Jesus wept there at the grave of Lazarus. He knows what it's like to lose someone he loves to death. And Jesus, the man, the God-man, has tasted the bitter pill of loss. Someday he's going to wipe the tears away from us. And that pictured in that, when I think about that, it says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I think of it as like we've, we've had our four children all pretty much growing up or almost grown up, uh, right? Close. Uh, just have one left. I'm trying to get her out. But anyways, uh, amount of times that they would come, coming through the door, tears running down their face, sometimes because they got hurt, sometimes because somebody says something mean, you know, something like that. Um, when little kids, you know, sometimes that happens. And then you go from a moment of pick them up in your arms and the tears are still on their face and then all of a sudden they're happy and laughing and smiling because their parent has made all the difference, right? It wasn't always that pretty, but that's the way I'd like to think of it. But I just say, you know, our picture in heaven is going to be like that. Some will go from this world and realm of mortality and death will swallow us up while the tears are flowing for those around us and for those on us that are going through that sometimes and immediately are in the presence of God and he wipes away the tears. No more tears from there on out. Good thing. No more death. Isaiah 25 eight. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be accomplished. No more pain. No more hunger. No more problems that way. Associated with those, those things. Um. Uh, I put in, and this is not in Wilmington's list, but thinking about the Apostle Paul and as he suffered so greatly in his uh, time as a Christian and, and ends up finally in prison. You come to Second Timothy, which is his final message, his final uh, written letter that we have. And in the end of that, um, in, he, he, he pours out his heart in that. But... It's interesting, when he was writing to Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy, he writes to a pastor who also is broken-hearted and has cried tears. And that's something maybe you don't connect with Timothy, but it opens in, uh, in 2 Timothy. In uh, chapter 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears. Here's Paul, mindful of his, his son in the faith and mindful of his tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, Sometimes that genuine faith shows up in that way of tears. 
which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Wow. He wipes away all tears. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Someday those former things are gone. I don't think it means that we won't be mindful of them, but it will be a different perspective. Um, For instance, I kind of liken it to when I was a kid, probably fourth grade, I got the chicken pox. And everybody got the chicken pox that year. You know, it was before people were vaccinated and all that stuff. But I remember um, getting the chicken pox. And I was miserable. Absolutely felt awful. I had a fever. And I remember sitting in my dad's pickup between my mom and my dad. And my brother, I think, was there too. And I remember just telling him, I feel so sick. And my dad said to me, in a couple weeks, you won't even remember how sick you are. And you know... I can think back to the time I had chickenpox. I can't really remember how it felt. I know I had it, but I don't really remember the sickness part of it. In my mind, I know I made note of it that I was really sick. But you know, in heaven, I think we might be mindful of the struggles and trials and all the things that were down here. But in light of eternity, they aren't going to matter anymore. We aren't going to feel that aspect of whatever befell us here. Oh, a lot more here. I've got to finish this up. Um, no, more, no more judgment upon sin. Uh, I put in the middle. I think I got the wrong reference here. No, just because I added some extra verses about the great enemy of... What's that? Yes, I see that here, but I think when I typed it in, though, I... I have the wrong one. But in that one is in there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And But I'm looking at where I put that. Ah, oh, I put it way over here. That's why. No more judgment. There will be no more need for the sun or the moon. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And... What we need down here to see, you know, um, up there we don't anymore. We don't have the sun. Uh, We won't have the moon. It it doesn't really say uh, that it won't be there. It just says there's no need of the sun or the moon. So imagine someone, in this case, the Son of God, the Lamb, so brilliant in his glory that we don't even take note of the sun or the moon. You know, it's not like it is now here. The city will be the bridegroom's gift to the bride, Christ's church. And I didn't, I skipped over the verse, no night. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. Here we cycle our days based on daylight and, and darkness, right? And that's kind of the way things are. In heaven, it's just daylight, glory light, really. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Uh, 
and then Revelation 21, 2, that's where I was going. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so this whole picture of this city, this glorious city, the New Jerusalem, the, really connected with this whole realm of heaven, is God's gift to his bride. Uh, I think that's pretty good. I don't know, men, what you gave your bride when you got married and what you moved into. Um, But when we experience that spiritual consummation of a marriage with Christ, our Savior, he's going to give us a beautiful place. Far greater than anything down here. Revelation 20. 1 verse 10 and he carried me away in the spirit to great high mountain showed me the great city the holy jerusalem descending out of heaven from god and we could go on with that it will be shared also by saved israel um and again believers of all dispensations all ages will be present there but in this dispensation from the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church, we have essentially the bride, which is unique in that. Still will have the same eternal dwelling, but a different eternal relationship slightly, in that one is referred to as the bride, others are referred to as the friends of the bridegroom. Hebrews eleven sixteen, referring to, again, those that looked by faith to heaven, says, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And uh, we have that. There will be angels there as well. Um, Daniel 7.10, I'll just throw this out. It says, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand, thousands ministered to him. So as Daniel has this vision, he's seeing the thousands upon thousands of angels that minister. The book of Hebrews says they are ministering spirits, by the way. Um, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Revelation chapter 4, we also um, have that description. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and the one sat on the throne and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And we have uh, the picture there of, uh, uh, I didn't put it in that reference, but that throne room of God. And the, uh, this, again, what will be there, these creatures also that cry out, holy, holy, holy. And then we have um, the Father who will be there. I'm going to see if I wrote this down. Yeah, this is the Daniel 7, 9. Um, The Father. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like a pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. And you have a picture there of the Father, uh, and that was also... Revelation 4. I won't read that because we already read it. And then we have the Son will also be there. We know that from Revelation 5, 6. 
And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And the number seven being one of completion. He's the omniscient, all-knowing, all-present God. And he's identified as the lamb who was slain. That is Jesus, the Son. And then the Holy Spirit himself will also be there in heaven. Revelation 4, 14, 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And now on, yes, says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. And then that great invitation verse of Revelation twenty two seventeen, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Anyways, roughly some 50 plus facts about heaven. Lots of verses there. Hope you followed them a little bit. And if you just take one or two of those away, maybe tonight, and think about those things this week. Lord, we're grateful for your word, grateful for the promises given to us and this promise of heaven. And we look forward to that day, O God. And yet, now we have a mission, we have a life here, and Lord, we need to live it for you. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.